Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. What would the world look like if China achieves its ambitions, and how would that be different from the way it looks today? Well, I think it looks like a, a 19th century world, a world that is sort of pre-international norms and rules in which uh, states can exercise you know, their policies and their desires with a degree of freedom that really you know, allows that power is essentially the only thing that is a determinant of whether they're, they're able to do it or not. Matt Turpin is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, specializing in U.S. policy towards China, economic statecraft, and technology innovation. He is also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies. From 2018 to 2019, Matt served as the U.S. National Security Council's Director for China and as the Senior Advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Before entering the White House, Matt served over 22 years in the U.S. Army in a variety of positions, including serving as an advisor on China to the Chairman and Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I just sat down with Matt to talk about his career and about China. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Matt, I want to start by asking you a bit about your career. You attended 
and graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I want to ask you, how did you end up there? What attracted you about serving in the military? Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's sort of a way back machine kind of question. Yeah, um, I entered West Point in in 1991. Um, you know, and and obviously we had sort of just you know the summer of 1991. So we had just we had just fought the 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 Gulf War. Um, yeah. I had been kind of interested uh, in the military. I my my dad is a college professor. Yeah, I'd had grandfathers in the military and an aunt and uncle, um, but I had no real experience. But it seemed like something exciting. It seemed like something that I could kind of belong to. Um, and as a high school student coming out of Southern California, uh, amazingly, there were not a whole bunch of people that wanted to go to upstate New York. Uh, to go to <laughs> uh, so, so my ability to get into to West Point uh, was much easier than my ability to get into the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. It just sort of turned out that way. But it was something that I was interested in but really didn't have any idea of what it was like. I'd never been to West Point before. Uh, I showed up the day before uh, reception day uh, mm-hmm. you know, and drove in on a bus from like Newark, New Jersey. You know, the entire bus was silent as everyone was realizing that, that this was sort of the end for you know, quite a while. Right. Um, and we'd be getting off and getting yelled at and harassed. And, uh, and it turned out to be exactly that way for, for a couple of years. So, yeah. And then where did your interest in China come from? Oh, well, um, so, yeah, I, I did not actually spend any of my academic career, you know, whether it was as an undergrad or, or at graduate school. I, I actually you know, have a graduate degree in American history from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and it wasn't really until about, you know, a little over a decade ago as I took an assignment where I got to choose between an assignment, you know, being a liaison officer at the Pentagon for CENTCOM, right? So focused on the Middle East, mm-hmm. or I could go be a war planner out in Honolulu at Pacific Command. And that was a that was a pretty easy choice, all things considered. Uh, and so that that was 2010. And obviously that was sort of the the beginning of of, of a pivot, you know, or a rebalance to Asia. Um, and so I got sort of a front row seat as as sort of the U.S. policy community began to pivot and, and rebalance towards the challenges that we saw in Asia, um, and so have been kind of doing that for, you know, I guess a little over a decade now. Um, but that's how I got into it. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily that I had sort of a long career as uh, you know I wouldn't necessarily be called a a classic China hand. Yeah, I was much more interested in U.S. policy. Um, sort of what our national security and foreign policy interests were. It just happened to be that that Beijing was beginning to pose some of the most important challenges, which is what which what pushed me into that area. So what what did you learn about China in that job um, at Pacific Command? What how did well, that shape your views? Yeah. Well, I mean, it gave me a a, a pretty in, intense understanding um, of, of our military challenge um, as well as a view of, of, of how our allies and partners viewed the U.S. position. Um, you know, this was a period of time. Uh, so this was sort of, you know, near the beginning of, of the Obama administration 
Um, you know, there's clear efforts by by the administration to begin to sort of rebalance what it was focused on. And I got to sort of see that up close, you know, from, from a headquarters that, that was looking at it every day. Right. Um, and, you know, I, you know, one of the most important things that sort of, I, you know, one of the most sort of, uh, you know, influential things on my thinking was the whole experience around uh, the, the earthquake tsunami and nuclear accident in Japan in, in March of 2011 um, and, and where we had been with, with the Japanese government and the U S government and sort of our relations up until that point, there had been some drifting. Um, and it was, in, it was increasingly difficult to see how the U S and Japan, uh, would continue to operate as an alliance. That experience really sort of reset the U S Japanese relationship. Um, you know, and then that, that, you know, kind of came on the heels of, of, of a number of things that, that was happening to Japan and really a, 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 a real appreciation of, of what the, what the U S role, um, and how we would interact with its allies, um, and got to watch that up close with some really impressive leaders, uh, at Pacific command, um, you know, as well as our folks on the ground in Japan, um, you know, that, that the U S and Japan could work together, um, and could sort of re-cement its alliance and begin to deal with sort of an increasingly aggressive um, and assertive Beijing that was sort of stressing that international system. Um, and so I, yeah, that, that, that period of time, sort of 2011 to 2012, was, was quite instrumental, in, at least in my thinking, and, and made me realize this is something that we needed to spend much more time on. And it's, and it's what I, I decided to then sort of you know, not necessarily return to the regular army, uh, but, but take a job back in the Pentagon, sort of running China strategy, uh, in the joint staff for what ended up being four years working for, uh, you know, General Dempsey and then, and then General Dunford, uh, Admiral Winnefeld and, and General Selva, as well as, as deputy secretary work, um, which, which, which was very, very much instrumental in my kind of thinking about what the challenges were and how the United States would have to begin to, to respond. And in what way? Um, yeah, so I mean, this this period, um, you know, you know, by early 2013, you have Xi Jinping coming to power, um, and you have you know, sort of two modes of thought inside the U.S. government sort of forming. One that that sort of our strategy that had been in place for uh, really about two to to two and a half decades, you know, a strategy of, of using economic engagement to drive political liberalization. It was, it was becoming sort of frayed that, that, that that strategy was not necessarily resulting in the outcomes that, that we had expected, right? Right. We were certainly seeing some spectacular economic progress inside the PRC. And, and, and so, you know, from that sense, you know, our intention to help the Chinese economy develop seemed to be working quite well. But the other half of it, which is that we would then expect to see political liberalization, right? Greater freedoms, uh, greater transparency, um, you know, the, the a strengthening of the rule of law, uh, you know, sort of a division of powers. Clearly, as, as Xi Jinping came in and sort of re-cemented the position of the party, it became increasingly hard 
to see how that strategy of economic engagement was resulting in the outcomes that what we wanted to see and that we needed to, to sort of wrestle with the implications of a change in our strategy, right? And that, you know, that, that transition point, and that transition point kind of happened between, you know, sort of late 2013 um, and then, you know, certainly by the end of the Obama administration, a realization that, that we were likely going to have to pursue a different course um, and adopt a new strategy uh, to, to secure U.S. interests um, and to protect you know, the interests of our allies. Matt, then you go to the White House as the director for China on the staff of the National Security Council and as an advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Let me ask you two questions, real quick questions. One, were you, were you still in the military at that point or had you um, retired? I had uh, I retired the summer of of 2017 and then interviewed with Secretary Ross during during my time in, in terminal leave um, from the military. A terminal leave is sort of the, the last leave you take in the military. It's it sounds worse than it is. Um, <laughs> and then I, I I took the job at 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 the White House and and with the Commerce Department in in January of 2018. So uh, I had about a six month window from from leaving the military and then you know, coming back in as, as an appointee. And then did you do both of those jobs at once, the commerce job and the NSC job, or did one transition into the other? So um, the, the commerce job, I, I was hired to, to take that job to then be a, a detailee to the White House. So that, that, those were simultaneous. Um, got to know the team at, at, at commerce, um, you know, an absolutely critical department that probably doesn't get nearly the attention or, uh, you know, sort of interest from the national security community. So I felt, you know, absolutely critical to sort of be there and was, felt myself quite lucky uh, to work in that department, but, but spent, you know, was on, on detail to the national security council for my, for my entire time, other, other than sort of two weeks on either end. And this, this period of time is really the beginning of the shaping of a new U.S. approach to China, right? We had gone through that realization yep. that you talked about, right, from 2010 to 2014, 15, 16, and this was this was the beginning of a new approach. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, that and that new approach, you know, certainly became, you know, the the, the outlines of it. You could see in a series of of speeches and and, and documents that. At the time, I remember Deputy Secretary of Defense Work, Bob Work, you know, making, uh, you know, going out and engaging with our European allies to talk about the kinds of things that both China and Russia were doing. You'll remember, you know, obviously, at the same time, you've got your know, realization that that our approach towards Moscow uh, also uh, was not resulting in the kinds of outcomes that that we had wanted, and so you sort of had these dual challenges, you know, both uh, Moscow and Beijing coming up at the same time and that there would need to be sort of a new approach. And so, you know, part of this, you know, certainly the language of competition, you know, certainly the summer of 2016, you've got folks like, you know, Secretary Carter, uh, you know, testifying along with, with, with General Dunford, you know, about a need for sort of uh, viewing our relationship with both Moscow and Beijing as, as competitive. And then, you know, the Trump administration comes in, uh, in early twenty, you know, January twenty seventeen, and begins really a, a policy process, you know, largely led by by 
by General McMaster, uh, who then leads the sort of the, the National Security Council you know, through a policy process that arrives at a, at a national security strategy that lays out, you know, strategic competition with both Moscow and Beijing are sort of our principal focuses. You know, and that's published in, in December of 2018 or 2017. Um, but you'll remember that, that, you know, for instance, the Section 301 investigation, which was really an investigation of, of China's sort of economic behavior, uh, begins in August of 17. And you can see that, that you know, there is a, there's an effort to sort of create a, a holistic approach, both a, an economic policy and a national security policy that, that are, are combined in a way to be able to, to begin to compete with the PRC. And for, for too long, we had sort of viewed those two elements of our policy, both an economic policy and a national security policy, as sort of separate things existing in separate worlds. Right. Um, and really an effort to bring those things together in terms of shorthand. This is sort of, you know, that, that economic security is national security. Um, and so you have a number of these sort of, sort of you know, sayings that are sort of going out there. But it's really reflecting sort of a, a wrestling with the, with the idea that ultimately in a world in which you've got other great powers that are using sort of all means at their disposal and, and particularly in sort of the economic, commercial and financial spaces to compete with us, that, that you know, untying our hand from behind our back and, and beginning to sort of use various sort of economic tools was something that we would have to consider, you know, much more strongly. Um, and so, you know, to me, this is, there's a, there's a lot of continuity here from, from the kinds of things that, that you had folks in the department of defense as, as well as Penny Pritzker at, at, at the commerce department, the Obama administration, in which they're looking at sort of Chinese industrial policies, how they harm the United States, how they sort of undermine, you know, elements of our national security and our allies, and that we would begin to have to wrestle with, what do we do in response to this? Um, and that, you know, in, in true sort of Washington fashion, uh, you know, that's a messy debate that unfolds over time. But because we can discuss these things sort of out in the open, at a certain point in time, you begin to have sort of a degree of, of consensus forming that ultimately we're in a different position than we had been, you know, a decade before with Beijing. So, Matt, I want to switch to China directly, if that's okay. And I want to ask you two questions. And to be honest, the second of which I have a hard time finding someone to answer with the kind of precision that I think is necessary to kind of bring the country along with us here. The first question is, can you describe the world order that China would like to see? In other words, what would the world look like if China achieves its ambitions and how would that be different from the way it looks today? Yeah. Um, well, I think it looks like a, a 19th century world in which, uh, you know, a, a, a world that is sort of, of pre international norms and rules, uh, in which, uh, states can exercise, you know, their policies and their desires with a degree of freedom um, that that really you know, allows that that power is essentially the only thing that is a determinant of whether they're they're able to do it or not. Um, you know, I, certainly Beijing has 
has benefited you know, economically over the past sort of four decades from a stable international order that allows them to, to, to grow as an economic power um, and as a wider sort of national power. But I also believe it, it's quite clear that, that they view those conditions as, as constraints on Beijing achieving sort of you know, what the party lays out for itself and, and certainly what, what Xi Jinping both, you know, and I think you know, the, the, the amazing continuity between his, the speech he gave as an inaugural speech in, in January of 2013 to the Central Committee as he took power and the one that he gave last week um, on the 100th anniversary of, of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, viewing himself as, as you know, viewing the, the party and, and, and the Chinese nation as in a, as in a sort of historical struggle to, to remake this, the, the international system to secure what Beijing thinks, and, and particularly the party thinks, uh, is the appropriate ways uh, for their governance to run. And that that would look very different than an idea of rule of law, of sort of separations of power, um, of transparency, and that while I don't think that Beijing seeks to to install the you know a clone of the Chinese Communist Party in every country around the world, um, it it doesn't want a system that that confines or undermines the Beijing's ability to achieve what it wants to do. So it's much more for them about themselves, and that the rest of the world needs to get out of the way. Uh, as opposed to making the rest of the world look like them. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Matt Turpin. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Matt, a couple of kind of sub-questions to that first one. What What does Beijing want to use its unconstrained power for? Is it to sustain their economy and sustain the party? Is it for other reasons? That power that they want to use in that unconstrained way, what's the bottom line for them? What's the objective? Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there is, I think there is a sort of a, a wide debate, right? Um, you know, and, and, and some of the debate within sort of the community of, of, of China watchers and, and, and those that are looking at it, you know, one side of it, I think, sees that that simply China simply wants to realize sort of a peer status in the world, and then sort of take its place within an international system, and then make sort of minor changes around the edges of that international system. Um, I, I think you know, I think that's a, a wishful idea. That that certainly is an idea that we in in both the United States and probably our friends in Europe and in Japan. You know, could reconcile with we we could reconcile if that was the the extent right. of Beijing's desires. I'm I'm increasingly concerned, and I think you know there are plenty of others that that watch as well. That that Beijing actually has a much broader uh, set of intentions. That the PRC 
views itself, uh, you know, in the in the broad national rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and that that the PRC's rightful place is at sort of the center of of the global order, and that until those that the global order is nearly completely reordered around the party's intentions, that it won't be enough, and that there are many things that that they view in in sort of a nationalist sense as you know, crimes against the Chinese nation that took place you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries that would need to be rectified. And that you know, those are certainly around borders um, and, and are about sort of reestablishing the PRC's place in the world. And, and so I think that's sort of a nationalist angle of it. But mm-hmm. I think there is also sort of deep party ideology. There's, there's a tendency for us to think that, that the Chinese Communist Party is not communist. Um, and that they don't actually believe any of the ideology you know, that comes from a Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinist background, right? About about party organization um, and about how the party should rule, and its its mission in essentially achieving you know broad social revolution. And and I think to a certain degree, you know, that's again also wishful thinking on our part. It, it's really convenient for us to sort of want to think that. You know, so the communism of of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is has been relegated to the dustbin of history, and that our our friends in Beijing have learned that that's not the way to go. Um, but increasingly, it, it appears that 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 language and that ideology infuses much of what the party says to itself. And I just I tend to think, and as, as a historian, I, I tend to think that that folks, you know, when they make speeches and and write papers and and continuously harp on things, right? That they're in a, a long term struggle between, uh, you know, socialism and capitalism. That they actually believe some of those things. That those things, those terms, and that that language is not simply thrown out um, as fluff on the side of a broader speech, but are actually the centerpiece um, of what of what the party believes, and certainly Xi Jinping believes, right? That that they believe that there is a broad ideological struggle going on uh, about you know different forms of governance and testing of which system is better um, and so for the United States if we're interested in maintaining an international system which, which privileges democracies which privileges the rule of law and 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 privileges individual rights then then we likely have to stand up for that yeah. um, it isn't going to happen on its own. Um, and, and the PRC would, would prefer a world where those, those values are not privileged and that, that what you see is actually the privileging of an aristocracy, a red aristocracy inside the PRC, um, you know, privileging the idea that, that the state controls, uh, outcomes and does so for the benefit of, of the ruling regime as opposed to its individual citizens. And that, Sort of many of the things that we would want to see is further progress in, in from a from a U.S. perspective, um, and for other democracies would be very difficult in a kind of world that was reordered around what Beijing has in mind. So, Matt, you mentioned Xi's speech last week at the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the party, and one of the things that I found interesting about the speech, and I'd love to get your reaction to this, is it didn't sound like the country that was ready to take its place 
at the center of things, right? It, 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 it sounded to me like, like there was a lot of insecurity in the speech. And I'm wondering if you sense the same thing, and if so, why that tone? Do they really feel like they're not quite there yet? To what extent are they worried about us? Where do, where do you think that tone came from? Well, I mean, that, certainly that tone did not arise uh, last week. Right. Um, you know, there, I mean, there's this, there's this, I, I think, you know, longstanding paradox, um, you know, within the Chinese Communist Party, but, but, but ultimately within other sort of authoritarian sort of Leninist model parties um, in which sort of, you know, a relatively small band of, of elites, um, you know, seeks to, to claim exclusive rule that can't be challenged. And it, that part of the ways that they legitimize that rule is by trying to assure their population that that any potential benefit uh, that they might want, that they've gained or what they want in the future can only come through the stabilizing force of that aristocracy. And that without them, that the country would fall into chaos and that everything would be disastrous. And I think that for for the Chinese Communist Party, you know that is a that is a sort of a well ingrained concept, right? You know, deeply, deeply established. But I think that that they have to continuously struggle with the fact that there are there are just a lot of places in the world where ruling parties get voted out of power, and the entire society doesn't collapse, and and it suggests that maybe that entire sort of ideology that they must be allowed to continue to rule no matter what. Um, and that, that if they don't rule that completely complete disaster faces the nation, you know, it's without a significant effort to continuously sort of stress that, that propaganda position, right. That, that, gotcha. that, that assertion that folks begin to ask questions about, is that really true? Yeah, right? and so you know, I think you know that is one of the underlying things. It's 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 almost as if it's a shrill sort of language of you know we are unstoppable, um, and you know our our legitimacy and, and rule is completely unquestionable. You know the lady doth protest too much. Yeah, think. we're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more intelligence matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Matt, the second question I wanted to ask you is what are the specific downsides to us, to the United States and China achieving the world that they're trying to create? You know, would our standard of living be lower than it otherwise would be? Would our privacy and civil liberties be put at risk? Would the world be a less stable place, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in other words, 
how to explain to somebody in the United States why we should see China as such a significant challenge and to treat it as such. Yeah. I mean, we we could sort of take any number of these sort of angles, but you know, maybe I'll start with sort of the sort of the economic side. And and you know, I mean there was a there was a thesis broadly held across sort of of you know policy communities that that by allowing China into the WTO, even though it had not become a market economy, right? So even though that it didn't essentially have, you know, didn't follow ideas of free markets and and hadn't implemented the policies that would that would have the states step out of control of of economic policy um, or or step out you know of control of 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 how prices were determined and things like that, which which was the standard that we had set for nearly every other country to join the WTO. Um, that there had been this theory that that through through comparative advantages and, and everything else, that we would find ourselves, you know, in a significantly better position, and we would have resulted in sort of political liberalization within the PRC. Well, we didn't we didn't get the second, but increasingly it was clear very clear, and in, in, you know, I certainly you know by by early 2016, you have a number of economists writing about the China shock, right? right. So the the implications of of what China's entry into the WTO, um, their failure to fulfill their commitments to the to the entry into the WTO, right? So they you know, they were not a market economy yet, but but they essentially had made commitments that they would become a market economy. They would continue liberalization reforms, but those liberalization reforms you know really began to taper off significantly as as China entered the WTO, and 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 certainly the Chinese state. Never stepped away from from an idea that 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 they would be the ultimate arbiter of how the account, economy ran, and and while we saw a blossoming of, of private enterprise, you know we also saw you know continued intervention and subsidization, which then undermined you know U.S. manufacturing and undermined a number of parts of the U.S. economy, and I think it was the announcement of of China's policy of of made in China 2025, you know in 2015, which which essentially laid out that that. What China had done to low-value manufacturing, right? Textiles and you know simple electronics and uh, you know and various in- industrials, and that they would take those same tactics and apply them to high-value manufacturing, which which for the United States, for Japan, for Korea, for for our European friends, you know these were the this was the lifeblood of our economic prosperity, and that 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 the PRC would begin to apply those same tactics. To be able to gain, uh, you know, national champions and and execute the same sort of playbook on high value manufacturing, which really is sits at the centerpiece of of U.S. economic prosperity, and that if that were to to, to play out, that it would be extremely damaging uh, to our own prosperity. And so, you know, what we had seen happen across the Rust Belt, where sort of U.S. manufacturing was carved out as you move to lower you know, lower cost labor inside the PRC. Um, you know, a period of of what, what was called globalization, but I think it was really much more accurately be to be seen as hyper concentration of manufacturing uh, on the east coast of China. That that created real impacts inside the United States in terms of of economic prosperity, and and certainly there were, there were claims that that well well consumers can purchase things for for less money, but if you're not making a paycheck. You know, slightly less cost is really not all that much of a 
uh, of a bomb to that broader problem of of sort of losing your livelihood. Right. And so I think you know that that is what we sort of saw kind of going forward from an economic perspective. If Beijing achieves what you know it it is laying out that it wants to be able to do, um, you know we could we could kind of go on to what like sort of what the world would look like. Um, but yeah, you know, I think our one one aspect of it is that that you will be very much limited into sort of what you can say and think. Um, so if you touch on things that 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 the party does not find, you know, the party objects to, um, that there will be sort of extraterritorial reach of how your thoughts are regulated, uh, what you can see on the internet, what you can be allowed to say. Um, we've seen American citizens, you know, inside the United States, you know, be coerced and, and retaliated against for for things that you know they would say online, um, and and that 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 would generally find itself established across the world, and we would find ourselves in just a very much less free area, and that countries would feel obliged to limit the the, the speech and protests of their own citizens in order to stay on the right side of Beijing, and yeah. and to me that's that's a that's a very disturbing world to find ourselves in. So Matt. What will determine who wins this competition? Who wins this struggle for what the world is going to look like? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one, I'd I'd say that you know, I've I've often compared us as just sort of being like in a you know in an endless relay race, and that each of us sort of has sort of a race to run, but there isn't necessarily a clear finish line. Yeah. Um, you know. It is a matter of making ourselves better, um, and certainly, I think the Biden administration, you know, has come out very strong in, in laying out its case about you know, in a long-term competition with with authoritarian states, you know, like the one that is represented from by the Chinese Communist Party, that that we need to make ourselves better, um, and and so that's I think a, a critical component of it. And I'm, I'm optimistic to see the kinds of things that are being sort of put forward, uh, to be able to realize that, you know, but obviously that isn't the only thing that you've got to be able to do. I mean, it, you, you also want to make sure that it's, it's more costly for your competitor to achieve their objectives. And that requires, so, so both a combination of carrots and sticks to help you achieve your objectives and, undermine your competitor from achieving their objectives. And that, you know, that, that may sit sort of wrong with, with, with some folks who, who would think that, you know, what we should be striving for is, is full on cooperation. You know, I, I wish that were the world we lived in, but it would appear, you know, very clearly to me that that is not the sort of approach that Beijing wants. They would want us to cooperate with their objectives while they compete strenuously uh, to achieve uh, to achieve their own objectives and undermine ours. And, and that's just sort of the world that we live in. And, and so I think that's kind of what we've got right now. And uh, so maybe I'll stop there. So how do you think this ends? Are you, there is no finish line, of course, but are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about our ability to compete with this country and its vision of the world? Well, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I, I, um, yeah, you and I have talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think we should be very confident in our ability to compete over the long term. Um, you know, we, we need to understand sort of what the stakes are, but 
I mean, Americans and our friends around the world who who also enjoy this international system, you know, as as we are motivated to be able to to protect what we what we value, I think that we have enormous advantages. And I think you know what you brought up earlier about sort of the the tone inside Xi Jinping's speech last week, as well as the tone that we've seen, whether it's through through wolf warrior diplomacy or various other areas. Um, it suggests a real deep concern inside the Communist Party about their ability over time to be able to do this. And, and so I think, I think we should be confident, but that does not mean that it will be easy. Right. Um, we will have to make sacrifices and invest significant resources to be able to do this over time. But I think, our, I think the kind of world we want in the future is worth those investments. And and we shouldn't be we shouldn't shy away from them. We should also be very open and discuss it amongst ourselves, right? There isn't it is not as if all of these things are over and the debate is over, and that we just have to resign ourselves to to a long term competition. I, you know, I welcome that we have a long term debate about this, um, and that we continuously have have the discussion out there, because obviously Beijing could choose another direction, and if they chose to do so, um, we should welcome that. Right. If they chose to essentially say you know, these are things that, you know, there are things that we're going to align with the United States and, and other democracies uh, on on reinforcing, we should be ready to accept that. But cautious of their intentions, but but absolutely ready to embrace it should they choose to do so. But really make the investments we need to make here at home and push back on them and make their life more difficult if they go in the wrong direction. Right. And, and I think it, we also need to be aware that 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 tactic, right? That that strategy that I that 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 you just described, I think very well, will elicit from Beijing the ideas that 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 will lead to sort of inevitable conflict, and that, that we should abandon that strategy. And I think that's also a degree of a you know shows their their real concern yeah. because that approach, right? Do our own thing better and compete with them vigorously and build sort of alliances to be able to make that happen is what scares Beijing, right? And one of the things they will seek to do to sort of take us off that game is to try to convince us that by pushing back against them, it will lead to conflict and war and, and, and catastrophe. And, and I think we should, you know, we should remain mindful of that, but we should not let that kind of language deter us from, from doing the kinds of things that we probably know are right to do. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This has been a great discussion, and we hope to have you back again sometime. Well, thank you, Michael. That was Matt Turpin. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts.